Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about catch-up mechanisms. We're talking about what do you do when a player's in last place, a player's behind, and how to keep them engaged, how to keep them uh, excited about the game and not just give up and want to walk away. And we're talking to Joseph Chin from Metafactory Games. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. So I'm excited to talk to you. You, you put out some blog posts, I and mean, you write on Medium, and I follow a lot of stuff you uh, you write, and I put that out in the, the newsletter. So uh, people listen to this, there's a good chance several, several of them have read your stuff, which is kind of cool, and we get to talk about some of that today. But I, I'm excited to talk to you about one of those blog posts that I found really interesting and in going into different uh, catch-up mechanisms and why they're used and how to use them in different ways. And so I really want to talk to you about that. But before we get into it, tell me who Joseph is. Tell me about your, your little company that is just, just getting going and how you got into game design all that good stuff. Yeah, so um, I'm d- designing a game with uh, my friend Justin Faulkner. So we are designers for Fantastic Factories, and we formed made the factory games in order to self-publish on Kickstarter, which uh, should be launching May 29th. So we, I think we just kind of got our start just like most people, kind of like, you know, well, not literally in our garage, but we were like, hey, you know, we like playing board games. Like, why don't we try making one? And it was a group of four of us initially, and we just kind of uh, threw together a lot of mechanics from different games that we've enjoyed in the past. And, you know, a little bit about us as gamers, we are kind of like uh, gamers that like to play the same game over and over again. So we had some favorites like Dominion, Seven Wonders, a lot of kind of classics that uh, have a lot of replay value. And we wanted to mix together a lot of those kind of mechanics into one game and kind of eliminate some of those less desirable aspects like uh, some, you know, AP-prone like turns where there's player downtime, things like that. But turns out it's rather difficult to get the right mix of all the mechanics and, and eliminating all the things you don't want in your game. But we've, we've been working on it for the last two and a half years, and that's uh, where we're at now, and we're launching Kickstarter. Yeah, awesome, man. Now, was, was this one of those situations where the game you wanted didn't exist? So it's like, well, I guess we'll make it? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like my experience when I first set out to make this game, well, first of all, I wasn't intending to self-publish. It's one of those things where you just kind of do it for fun and kind of evolves from one step to another and it grows beyond kind of what you initially thought it would be. And so initially, I think our experience in terms of uh, how many games we play actually was fairly limited. So we didn't necessarily do a research and say, hmm, what else is out there? But uh, you know, it's one of those things. If you create something, you know, or, you know, out of your own creativity, there's always going to be differences between your game and other games. And I think what we've done is, is, I guess, not necessarily groundbreaking mechanically, but in terms of the the, the mix, the theme, the approachability, and all those things combined, I think is pretty unique. Yeah, very cool. And I'm excited to hear more about your game in just a little bit. But first, let's get into the topic: catch up mechanisms. Now. Let's first let's start off with like a good definition. What would you say is a good working definition of a catch-up mechanism? Well, catch-up mechanism, I think, is I guess if you just 
analyze what the name says ketchup. It's designed it's not for tomatoes. Right? So was that? Not it's not tomatoes or anything, right? Not no, not not tomatoes, not mustard. <laughs> uh Yep, so it, it's designed not for hamburgers, but for players that are lagging behind, perhaps last place, an opportunity to catch up, you know, catch the leader, be still in the game, play competitively, and potentially win the game, even if they're behind. Yeah, so basically any kind of mechanism, any kind of system in a game that rewards the player that's in last or rewards the players that are behind, whoever it is, in front, and there's several different ways that this can be done, and I want to get that in a second. But why why are they important? Why do so many games have catch up mechanisms in them, and why do so many other games probably need them, even you know if they don't have them? Well, you know, it's I think we've been in the, that situation before in past games where we're playing and we're just doing poorly, and for whatever reason we feel like we just have no chance of winning, and you just kind of check out of the game. You know, you lose interest if you have no. The point of the game is to win, and you have no chance of winning. Then you suddenly just are not interested in playing anymore, and that can ruin the experience for everyone at the table. So the catch mechanics are designed to keep you involved, keep you invested in the game, and keep everyone, uh, you know, at the table, kind of reaching for the same goal. Yeah, I think it's a great way to keep players from not checking out. Because I mean, most of us, if not all of us, have played a game like you said, where it's like this, is, this isn't fun anymore because I am three thousand points behind, and like, why don't I just like I feel like I'm just going through the motions to get to the end game to tell tell Steve that he won, and everybody knows that Steve already won. So like, why don't we just stop here and go play something else? And so it kind of helps players to stay in there uh, psychologically. Now let's get into some of the, the ways that this, this mechanism is used in other games. And this is something you went through uh, in one of your blog posts, and I found it really interesting kind of how you broke things down into the type of mechanism it was, why it was used, if it was good or bad, you know, pros and cons, so to speak. And so let's start off with Power Grid. Let's tell me about the catch-up mechanism in Power Grid. Yeah, so I think Power Grid is a very classic uh, example where the goal of the game is you're trying to power as many cities as possible, and that's kind of the win condition is by powering as many cities as possible. But throughout the game, you know, you may be powering different level numbers of cities and you may be ahead or behind other players. And players who are in last place in terms of how many cities are powering, they get a huge advantage in that they get first chance at buying resources needed to power their power plants. And so they get the best rates, they get the best selection. They also go last, I believe they also go last during the auction phase, which is also an advantage. And so it's a very powerful catch-up mechanic and one that people point to very often because it's a very heavy-handed one. And it's very polarizing, actually. If you think, if you talk about it, um, I believe Ludology covers it as well. Um, some people love that part of the game and some people hate it. And I think it comes, uh, the reason is that experienced players will know how to take advantage of that. You know, the whole the the goal of the game is to get as many powered cities as possible, but you only need the most at the very end of the game. Mm -hmm. So ideally, you kind of hang back, you know, not necessarily in first place, maybe in last place for the first half of the game where you can eke out all these advantages uh, and if you're playing well. And the criticism to that is that it's, could be, it's considered a little counterintuitive to the theme where you're trying to power as many cities as possible but experienced players will want to power as few as possible until the very end of the game. And what happens is that this catch-up mechanic becomes 
part of the game. It even becomes the main feature of the game. And I think that's why a lot of people like Power Grid is because this kind of novel catch-up mechanic becomes a very interesting way of uh, gaming the system. But, you know, it's a little, it's less intuitive, I think, for new players. And it has the potential to kind of warp the way people play your game. So it's something that you need to be careful of when you're using. Yeah, for sure. I think, you, if I remember right, you pointed out on the blog that uh, the game would be a very different game if this mechanism wasn't in it. You know, if, if players didn't have this catch-up mechanism, uh, then they would their strategies, their tactics during the game would be totally different. Like you said, it's not super thematic. It's like, all right, you want to hold back and not power a whole bunch of power plants because you're going to get more points in the end. It's kind of funny. Uh, if you think about it, it's kind of like NASCAR, right? You, you don't want to just be out in front the whole race because that's going to, uh, it's going to cause the most wear and tear on your car. Like, you know, if you want, it'd be better to draft and get behind some of those other cars and let them kind of carry the weight, so to speak, for the majority of the race and then right. get out in front on that last lap and win the whole thing. And so it's interesting how this kind of shows up in other uh, places as well. There's another game. I don't know if you ever played, you ever played the game called Circus Train? Uh, I have not. Yeah, I think it's one from Victory Point Games I played some years ago. and had a very similar thing where you don't want to be in first place because if you're in first, uh, you, have, you have to lose members of your circus. So you're going around the board you know, doing circuses in different cities in, in the United States, and you're, you're trying to recruit clowns and recruit all these different types of circus performers. And if you're in first place, then you have to give up some performers to whoever's in last place every, every round. And so you, you don't want to be in first place. You, you want to be in second. Like you're playing for mm-hmm. second until the end. And it's just kind of an interesting, uh, strange, like it's not super thematic uh, way to approach the game. And it's just kind of funny how it causes, like you're saying, experienced players to play the game very differently than maybe a brand new player would. Let's get into the next one. Suburbia is another one that's super popular. And it's got a very interesting mechanism. How does that one work? Yeah, so um, Suburbia, you're trying to basically build a largest suburb with the most population and i believe that the win condition is population but as your population grows uh they the game has this mechanism that slows you down by i think thematically there are taxes and uh i forget what else but basically inhibits the amount of income you have and the uh what's the other word reputation i think i'm not sure but basically it slows you down by costing you this uh basically a tax on your income and your growth so as you're you're growing your, your suburb more it starts eating at your income and kind of slows down your growth so players who are kind of in the lead who have high population will feel this effect first and thus you know slow down their growth allowing other players an opportunity to catch up in population yeah, so it's not so much like a glass ceiling is like a glass tar pit or something like that. Like you, you can keep going up. Like you don't just run into a ceiling, but the more you go up, the more stuck you get. Like the harder it is to take that next step, so to speak. Right now, what are what are kind of the pros and cons of, of using this one? Well, what's nice is that it kind of affects everyone in a way. Like if you you still are inclined to score as much population as possible. Unlike in unlike in Power Grid, where you're you what you really want to do is just be like one point behind the winner, whereas Suburbia, it scales um, proportionally. You know, like you don't have to be in second place to be that much more benefit than the first place, because likely you guys are, are getting taxed roughly the same amount. Uh, whereas like in Power Grid, if you just happen to be last place because you're one point behind everyone else then you get first pick. 
So I think it's one that kind of lets people feel like they're they are kind of close to the front runners and that you aren't being punished just for being ahead of everyone else. You just feel the tax first, you feel more of that load, but not necessarily more than anyone else who would be kind of getting to getting to where you are as well. So if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is a in general a better way to do things because a lot of a lot of the criticism of catch up mechanics are are that it discourages optimal play or it it punishes people that are playing the game very well it punishes people who are in first place which is it's like wait wait, what i'm winning and i'm doing really well and so now i'm getting punished like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but when you have this like headwind so to speak where you know you're you're doing the best you can and just it it just gets harder to do better so to speak so as you get better and better and better and that's that's like real life you know the better you get in anything it gets harder to to improve you know uh, i heard a guy in the nfl talking about how when he was a rookie you know he could get 20 percent better in the offseason like that was that was easy because he wasn't as good as he knew he could be, but now he's a veteran, and so like getting one percent better in the off season is hard. Like, how do you how do you find that one percent better thing that you can you can do? So I think thematically it makes a lot more sense, and it just feels better in general to gamers, especially if they're doing really well. Yeah. So like the other kind of catch up mechanic we might see. So we've been talking about kind of these design game design mechanical kind of things, where the game enforces these uh, these kind of catch up mechanics. I think the, the another kind that you'll see a lot, especially in more social or casual games, is kind of these social catch mechanics where players have a choice in terms of what kind of actions they do or uh, that, that may affect other players. Um, to give an example is like Settlers of Catan. So in Settlers, there's a couple things going on. There's a little bit of resource trading. And deciding who to trade with is kind of a decision of who you can, who you're helping, because both both people who trade are going to benefit in the end, right? So the, whoever's left out of the trade is basically falling behind compared to other people. So anyone who's played Catan has kind of done this thing where, oh, so and so is winning, don't trade with him, right? So that can be a natural a little catch-up mechanic where they don't get the benefit of having this flexible trading arrangement, whereas everyone else does, and they can potentially catch up. There's also the robber. Um, when you place the robber on someone, you're going to try to stop the production of that hex in, in Settlers of Catan, and who do you put it on? You usually put it on the player in the lead, and you steal a resource from them. So these kind of social... Um, mechanics can social pressure can also keep the game in balance and what's nice about the social thing is that uh, your game mechanics don't have to be completely airtight because the players will kind of self-manage themselves in terms of who's going to be benefiting or not yeah, for sure, and it kind of comes down to the written versus unwritten catch-up mechanic. Like, does the game have a system in it that regulates the players, or does the game leave it up to to the players to kind of self-regulate? And I think, you know, there's definitely, definitely pros and cons, and it depends on the type of game. Do you have any advice on, like, if I'm developing a game right now, any advice on which system to choose? You know, should I go with the one that's more, you know, the game does it for you, or, or that the players do it? You know, and there's no, I wouldn't say that one is better or worse than the other, and it kind of depends on the kind of game that you're designing. I mean, there's there's a lot of considerations, there's thematic considerations. You know, you any kind of mechanism you introduce to the game, you want to have some sort of thematic tie 
because it, it makes it completes the experience a little better and it makes it a little more intuitive. But at the same time, you have to think about the weight of the game, the kind of audience of the game as well. So a lot of Euro style players, they don't like kind of the social aspect to the game. They they kind of prefer min maxing and not so much table talk, right? And so if you're catering to that kind of crowd, you're going to want less of this social kind of thing because a lot of those kind of uh, things that can affect other players can also result in king-making situations, yeah. which can can, can be a, a bad feeling to have when your win is taken away from you because of someone who, who was losing made some sort of arbitrary decision to help out the other other player. And so if it's a more competitive game, usually you want fewer social kind of things. Uh, and if it's a more casual game, one that's a little more lighthearted, that wants to encourage table talk, then you're going to want some more of that kind of uh, social catch mechanic. But I have a really good example is Munchkin. So Munchkin is like a wildly successful, popular game. But at the same time, for a lot of the hobby gamers, it's also a much hated game. I think largely because of the way it handles kind of this catch-up, where it almost doesn't matter what you do, someone is going to stop you from winning. And the person who ends up winning is oftentimes the second-place person or the person who hangs back. Um, but, you know, it is a lighthearted and fun game, and a lot of more serious hobby gamers kind of don't like it because it doesn't fit their playstyle. Yeah, that's one that has a whole lot of take that. You know, and so many cards where you can just... Uh, take people down a peg, so to speak. Oh, you're about to win? No, no, you thought you were about to win. You're not. Here, let me play this card and let me show you. And so, yeah, that can. it's super chaotic and all that kind of thing. And I think you bring up a great point and great advice. You just know your demographic. Know the game uh, that you're making and the audience that you're making it for. Because if you're making it for gamers that are, like, super heady and super, like, crunchy and they love the math and all these things and maybe aren't into the social interactions, well, don't have a, don't have a game where they need to do these social things to regulate the, the catch-up mechanism and vice versa on that. All right, so tell me about Fantastic Factories and kind of what you ran into with your own catch-up mechanism issues. Yeah, so that's an interesting one where Fantastic Factories is kind of uh, mostly a Euro style. It's a dice placement, like resource management, sort of tableau building, engine building kind of game. And so what I ran into is that there were runaway leaders, players who would kind of build this awesome engine and kind of just score so many points that there was no way of catching up. And this is actually a really common problem with engine building games. It's kind of this uh, give and take where people love building these engines that can pick up huge amounts of momentum. But then those players who don't kind of run into the same engine can fall behind. And initially in the game, I had a scoring track um, where players could see kind of where everyone was standing. And that actually put a lot of emphasis on kind of who was in the lead and who was winning. Uh, and then I introduced um, a sabotage mechanic where you could actually sabotage factories, take that little piece of engine out of play for just one round. So it was it was a take that kind of element, but one that wouldn't be too devastatingly strong. But I think, I believe it solved the problem to a certain extent, but I found that it did not mesh well with kind of the audience. And this back to, goes back to what I was talking about, the audience of your, your game, who you intend to target. And so there's a lot of these Euro players who don't like take that elements and didn't like the sabotage. I mean, me personally, I didn't mind it because I found it kind of a, a competitive kind of uh, element to the game and one that allowed you 
to make more interesting decisions. But a lot of Eurogamers just didn't like that kind of thing. They enjoyed kind of building their own engine uninterrupted. And I found that was the strength of the game. And so I ended up removing that from the game and finding some other solution, which uh, I think we can talk about a little, little bit more. It wasn't actually a catch-up mechanic. And I think just to transition to kind of what what else is there besides catch-up mechanics? Um, you know, we talked about how we are, like, we're punishing the leader, punishing people who are winning. Um, I think a really good example of... Uh, a very much hated kind of element. Uh, it's not a board game, but in, in Mario Kart, yeah. there is the blue shell. Right. So much hated because all there's no skill in using it at all. All you do is shoot out a blue shell, and it chases after whoever is in first place and and knocks and blows up and knocks them out, and and it might hit other people along the way as well. So that's that's one example where you're very heavily punished for being playing well because you're in first place the blue shell will only target you and it will guaranteed hit you so the question is should games even have catch-up mechanics i think as i was talking about like more serious games tend to not have catch-up mechanics or have much um more less heavy-handed catch-up mechanics or the catch-up mechanics become the game itself like in the case of power grid I think length and how competitive the game needs to be are all kind of considerations. Like you talk about, like oh, games need catch-up mechanics. I don't. I would say that's not necessarily true. I mean, look at chess for example. Chess doesn't have a catch-up mechanic, and I, I would argue it doesn't need one either. Uh, because it's a very, like in a way, serious, calculated, calculated, competitive game. Yeah. Um, of course, you also run into that's a, that's a two-player game, and so it's not like one person can get all the way in last place so to speak like you're you're there in first or second and it, it's also hard to measure who's in first place right because it, it's so you know you could look at a board and go oh this other person's obviously winning but like mm-hmm. a really good chess player could take some pawns and do some kind of really cool strategy and all of a sudden win with even if they were at a disadvantage on the board so i think that's something to, to think about as well can you can you create a, a game that players even if they're at a disadvantage can still have an opportunity to win, and so I think that's what we can learn from chess. Like it doesn't need a, it doesn't need a catch up mechanic because of the way it uses these other mechanisms in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also a game that kind of measures your skill level, and uh, it doesn't need that kind of those elements of right. of luck or, or or kind of rubber banding. No, that's a good point. But I think if we take a step back um, and from catch up mechanics and think about what are catch-up mechanics trying to solve? And it comes back to what we were saying about um, the definition is the, or rather that you want every player to have a chance of winning, or at least feel like they have a chance of winning. And I think that's where the distinction is, where maybe you don't need a catch-up mechanic because the goal is just to keep all players invested in the game. And there are actually a few other ways to do that without having a catch-up mechanic. Because it's really a psychological thing. Right. People, when they feel like they can't win, they don't want to play the game. So maybe there's some ways to keep everyone in the game because they think they can win. And if you look at um, some popular games like Ticket to Ride, how does Ticket to Ride solve that? Well, it solves it through hidden goals. So everyone gets these tickets and they're trying to build routes from different parts of the country to other parts of the country. 
the thing is, you don't know which players have which routes. Um, and you don't know how many points they're scoring. So until the end of the game, you really have no idea who is going to win and who's not going to win. So you always stay kind of invested in the game. The downside to the hidden goals is that oftentimes you actually don't know how well you're doing. Right. It's kind of a direct kind of uh, in contrast to this problem. And I think uh, what helps is if you have a good mix of the two where like some of his hidden goals some of it can score points some of the points are public where because you want players to feel like they're making some progress you want them to know that like was that a good turn or was that not a good turn right. and when you don't know how your score is compared to other players sometimes I mean, you get lost in the turn you're like I don't know if the things I'm doing are meaningful or not you know um, but you know and, and actually Ticket Ride does do a little bit of that in the sense that by building longer routes you score points just for having long uh, routes with more trains in it. Yeah, I remember so, the, uh, the first time I played Small World. In Small World, all of the victory points, the gold is hidden. And so the first time I played, I felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I feel pretty, I don't know if I'm going to win, but I feel like I'm doing well. I ended up losing by like 40 points. I was like, oh, wow, I was nowhere near anything good. That was terrible. I need to figure out how to play this game. And so because like, I didn't know what a good turn was, it's like, oh, I feel like this is good, but I, don't have, I didn't have anything to compare it to. And so that could be, yeah, like you're saying, a definite downside. Yeah, and I think you also see that in uh, point salad type games. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things like, well, everything you do scores points. Right. Like, how do you know if you're really doing a good turn? I mean, you want to be, you know, obviously a five point turn is better than a three point turn, but it's kind of like if you don't know how many points is considered good, you don't know if you're doing a good turn. But you can sometimes see that result in other players turns when they make a seven point turn you're like oh wow okay that's what a good turn looks like but with hidden goals you kind of get this um you don't know if other players are accomplishing their goals or not and that can be uh some challenging for improving play so like for games that you want to play over and over again you want to feel like you're getting better and better at a game but if you don't know how well you're scoring relative to other players that can be difficult sometimes yeah, for sure. Uh, these games may, makes me think of things, and I think it's ones that you mentioned in your article, Seven Wonders, Carcassonne, like these games that kind of have so many different things going on that give you points, and that could be a pretty good way to uh, keep players engaged so that you don't necessarily need a catch-up mechanism just because there's, there's so many ways to get points. And I think another one you mentioned was Dominion and had a really interesting way of handling this. So talk to me about that one. So Dominion uses something I like to call leader, leader headwind. And it's actually very similar to actually the same thing as in Suburbia, where if you so in Dominion, it's a deck builder. I think hopefully a lot of people know what Dominion is, but just to cover it, Dominion is a deck builder where you're accumulating victory points that go into your deck and victory point cards in your deck actually don't do anything. So as you're accumulating points, you're getting more and more cards that don't do anything and it actually slows you down and put basically as you're winning your engine gets slower and slower and i think that's really interesting because you know it, it acts like a catch-up mechanic in the sense that other players have an opportunity to catch up but i think the really clever thing here is that it's not a true catch-up mechanic in the sense that any players who are catching up will also run into the same issue of getting all these victory points in their deck. And so while it seems like you're catching up in terms of points, 
in terms of actual turns, you're actually no, you're no closer than you were before. So it has this interesting effect of psychologically letting people think they're catching up while still rewarding players who are doing well the the opportunity to win. Yeah, because really it's all about managing perception. It's not whether or not your game is fair. It's not whether or not you know players really and truly have a chance to win. It's do they think they do? Do they perceive right. that there's an opportunity for them to kind of pull out a win at, at the very end, right? Yeah, and you think about some of the most memorable games you've had are the ones that have that really close game. You know, you have just a few points away from the winner. Everyone's kind of even score. And the thing about Dominion is that as you're scoring points, you're scoring points slower. So it has this interesting effect. Is like maybe when you start running your engine, you're going to get like, uh, I forget the point values in Dominion, but let's say you're getting like six, uh, six points every turn. But then eventually you start, okay, only get three points and then one point on average, right? What ends up happening is that a lot as you're as the winner is getting just one or two points per turn on average, other players who are catching up are getting six points at a time. And they look like they're getting closer and closer, but they're gonna be slowed down as well. So while their point totals get closer and closer, the number of turns away from winning are actually the same. So there's still like two or three turns away from actually catching up, and the leader is always two or three turns ahead, anyways. Yeah. So I think that's kind of one of the better ways of uh, doing a catch-up mechanic, really solving this runaway leader problem. And that's also the case in suburbia, where I'm saying the tax is levied on everyone who has that population. So even if you're able to catch up, you still have to deal with the same tax that the leader has already been dealing with. Yeah, for sure. Another thing that's great about a game like Dominion, as this is concerned, is that it creates this interesting strategy. Like you have to really learn when to basically change your engine, like when to switch it from just trying to gain cards to now gaining victory points, and like knowing when to do that, and when to flip that switch is, is critical in a game of of winning or losing at the end. Especially if you have a number of players that really know what they're doing, and they could come down to like, did you switch your engine and change it? on the right turn or did you wait too many turns or did you do it too early and that kind of thing so it creates another like subsystem of strategy uh, and and again it keeps it close and keeps the perception that uh, anybody can win yeah now i want to go back to something you brought up a moment ago and you you mentioned that game length needs to be taken into account when figuring out a catch-up mechanism and things like that so let's let's go into why game length is an important thing to think about and whether or not you're going to have a a catch-up mechanism at all and maybe the kind of catch-up mechanism you have yeah, so it's it's actually very similar to player elimination. So when you feel like you have, well, when you're eliminated, you have no chance of winning. Right. If you feel like you have no chance of winning because your score is too low, you can also be effectively eliminated from the game. Yeah. And I think except it, it's worse because you can't go and like get some chips. Like you have to you have to still stay at the table. You can't leave that's the table. That's true. It's so like it's, worse. It's <laughs> worse. <laughs> so. Uh, and it also, like I said, can create some king-making yeah. uh, situations potentially. So, but the same reasons, the same logic kind of applies as player elimination in the sense that shorter games you can have player elimination. You can have uh, you can have fewer less catch-up mechanics because you know if the game's only ten minutes long, if you're gonna if you're losing, then well, at most you're gonna only have to wait ten minutes for the next game. And so the shorter the game. The, the more the less you need kind of some kind of catch-up mechanic. Uh, in longer games that are like two or three hours, you know, like you don't want to be sitting there an hour into a three-hour game knowing that you have no way of winning. Yeah. 
you know, that's two hours of your time that's going to be wasted. So kind of the longer the game, the more reasons you need to be able to get people reinvested into the game and, and kind of stay competitive as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the longer the game is, the more time there is to create space in between players. You know, if you have a really great player, it, it gives him more time. If it's a two-hour game, he has more time, more turns, more rounds to get space between him or her and everybody else. Whereas a 20-minute game, there's less time to, to kind of create that, that gap. And so it's just something to think about. Like, how long is your game? Because the length of your game definitely plays a huge part in this. Now, did we talk about how, how you figured out like what to do with Fantastic Factories, about how to kind of get things where you didn't necessarily need a catch-up mechanism? Right. So, yeah. So what I ended up doing is kind of uh, less of introducing a catch-up mechanic because I, I, as kind of a philosophy, is my, the kind of gamer I like to be is improving on a, uh, pl- the way you play a game over and over. I like to play the same games over and over and get better and better at those strategies. And so I, I like this idea of rewarding good play you know i wanted players who are doing well to not be punished as you as you said and but at the same time i wanted players who were behind to feel like they're still invested in the game and what it really came down to is identifying what the core fun of the game was and in fantastic factories it's about discovering these combination of factories for your engine and kind of figuring out the puzzle of putting all your workers in different places and the game itself is uh, not very interactive. It's actually more focused on this kind of puzzle-solving aspect. And putting the score tracker on the board actually distracted that, distracted from the core fun of the game. People were more focused on who was in the lead and how they're going to catch up, and the number of opportunities to catch up were fairly limited. I introduced the, the sabotage in order to try to fix that, but that further kind of detracted from the fun of the game. And so what I did was I ended up kind of peeling it back, and I did a few different things. I removed the scoring track, so built less focus on the score, and then I also added in a second way of scoring. So in Fantastic Factories, you used to have to run your engine in order to score points. So like in Dominion, you have to like score points by buying uh, duchies and provinces and whatever. That was the whole point of the game. In Fantastic Factories, I also made the various factories and cards you're building also worth points. So as you're building your engine, you're actually scoring points. Because I found a lot of players, they just love building stuff, mm-hmm. you know. There's, you know, the thing is a lot of different... The nice thing about Fantastic Factories is there's so many different ways to score points. You can run your engine by manufacturing goods, or you can build factories, build monuments, things like that that score you points. And different people will like doing different things. I found that people who like building lots of stuff sometimes forget to run their engine, and they end up with a really terrible score. And they'll end up with, like, they're ending with scores like 4 points to like 15. Mm-hmm. And that looks like a terribly misbalanced game, right, in the sense that how could someone have like 5 times the score as another player? So one way to actually help that perception was to assign point values to the cards they were already building. So that has an interesting effect. You know how I mentioned one player might have four points and the other player might have 15 points? And if players are building 10 cards and each of those cards is worth a point, your point total now is 25 points 
to 14 points. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that gap doesn't look as big. Yeah, it doesn't feel as big as 15 to 4. Yeah. If you added 100 points to everyone's score, and suddenly everyone's scores look that much closer. (laughs) And so it's this kind of psychological trick as well, where if you just add points to the game, it can make the game appear much closer. And the thing is, I was also rewarding players for building cards, which are things basically you want to reward people for doing things that they want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And some players just love building stuff. And for me, I actually, uh, I like building a very tight engine with as few pieces necessary as possible, but that's my play style. And it helped to have like a co-designer who had a complete opposite play style to me who just loves building stuff. So like whenever we play test, we're always at odds with like, I'm doing this strategy, you're doing that strategy. We want to make sure both strategies are viable because they're both strategies that people want to pursue. And so I started rewarding players for just building things, even if they didn't necessarily use them as part of the engine. Uh, a lot of times building a card, it can be expensive. And if you don't use it, then it's a huge missed opportunity. But to, in order to soften that blow, I was still awarding points for doing those actions. And so that kept players who maybe did some inefficient actions, it still awarded them with some points and that they remain kind of competitive and felt competitive. So it's a kind of combination of uh, all those aspects of removing the focus from who's in the lead, rewarding players for doing things that they want to be doing anyways, and but not as much as rewarding someone who's playing efficiently. And so it's a mix of all of those that I believe kind of helped solve that problem of that perceived runaway leader. Yeah, very cool, man. I think there's a lot of wisdom that, that people can, can get out of that. Like, you don't just have to have a catch-up mechanism if you can find other ways to approach the, the problem. And it, it might be a way that's way better than any catch-up uh, system that you would have installed otherwise. Well, Joseph, cool, man. Do you have any advice for somebody who right now that maybe they've got a game and they're like, gosh, the, the leader problem, you know, the perception, all these things are just frustrating and all that? What advice would you give them? Well, I would say play other games. See what other games are doing. And if you if you look at that blog post I wrote, I kind of dive deep into analysis of all these different games, and that's because how that's how I approach. It. Like this is not a problem that is unique to my game, you know. And you know, but the the correct solution might be unique to my game because you know the mechanics, the everything, the theme that's kind of produced for my game is different than any other game. But you can get a lot of ideas. It's almost kind of a tool belt of mechanics, you know. If you look at other games, you look at the context in which they are designed and the audience they're intended, you kind of get this sense of, okay, well, this game does it this way. It's very clever because it does it because of this audience and the way other players, you know, do this and that. And and basically, the more games that you can study and understand, the more tools you add to your tool belt. And then you can use those tools on your own game. You might modify it slightly. You might combine a couple different aspects and you get a sense of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate for a game and so i think if you're trying to find a solution to your game sometimes it can be good to take a step back and play some published games because a lot of game designers have gone down that same route as you and they've found them some solution and some wisdom and you can you can learn from their wisdom and their mistakes and their the lessons they've learned as well yeah absolutely don't reinvent the wheel 
right? Stand stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. Well, Joseph, awesome, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Tell me about your Kickstarter. Give me the, the quick synopsis about what you got going on with Fantastic Factories on Kickstarter. All right. Well, yeah, Fantastic Factories is a dice placement engine building game for one to five players. It has a solo mode. It's uh, It plays in an hour or less, and it's this... I would say kind of a gateway plus game where you're trying to build the right combination of factories in order to manufacture as many goods as possible. And you're rolling dice and using your dice as workers. So I like to describe it, if people know the game, as a combination of Race for Galaxy and Alien Frontiers. But kind of without the intimidating iconography of Race for the Galaxy, I wanted Fantastic Factories to be this game that you could get to the table all the time and that had great replay value and something that gamers would love to play. And so I think it's kind of it's hit that mark. One of the one of the unique aspects of the game is that the the work phase is played simultaneously. So while you're doing your actions, everyone else is doing the same actions. And it allows you to play these really interesting chains of actions without waiting for other players or other players waiting for you to put all those actions into play. So it really cuts down on player downtime. So yeah, I invite you guys to check it out on, on Kickstarter should be launched on may 29th yeah check it out awesome yeah i hope that uh it does really really well appreciate you coming on the show we're about to head over into a bonus round we're going to talk about how to build a mailing list how to build up an audience how to build up fans who have no idea who you are and now they're giving you their email address so you can actually uh, start uh, marketing to them start a relationship start uh, letting them know about your games joseph has had some uh, extensive work with that over the last several months actually probably the last couple of years all right you've been de- developing this game and trying to get people aware of it so we're gonna do that over in the bonus round again joseph appreciate your time and good luck with your kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now all right thank you thanks for listening hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?